0: Saturday, February 7th, 2009, upon further review, episode number 67. In this episode, we tackle psychiatrists, superheroes, and pseudonyms. Not necessarily in that order. I mean, you know how we roll on this show.
1: Hey, Upon Further Review, I'm Greg. I'm Clea. And we want to welcome everybody to Upon Further Review. This is episode 67, and it's been a little while since our last show, but um, we have... We have a
2: new president
1: now. I know. I know. Last time we talked to you, we had an old president. Yes, and we on have the a new... same
2: day, our daughter turned one.
1: We thought that that was rather auspicious, yes. And uh, President Obama had insisted that he would only be inaugurated on the day of our daughter's birthday, so... Um, yeah, that's not true. That's completely not true. Senevine's birthday was uh, on January 20th. She is now one year old, so, those of you who have uh, been somewhat longer listeners will be surprised to know that time has gone on. <laughs> And here we, are, uh, here we are in episode 67 and one-year-old for our daughter. So things move on. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to thank everybody, first of all, for contributing, as always, for sending us suggestions and feedback and comments and so forth. And we encourage you to keep doing that. And one nice thing about this uh, slight delay in this last show is that I had a chance to do an interview, and I'm going to be able to roll out parts of that interview along with the review that we're doing over the next few weeks so that we'll have a couple of shows out to you in relatively short order. And we're going to be reviewing a book called From the Notebooks of Dr Brain. Normally as you know we review three things. We are only going to be reviewing the one thing this time and that's because Clee and I are going to spend uh, the first 10 minutes or so talking about the book. And then the remainder of the show will be the first clip that I have from an interview that I did with the author of the book named Minister Faust and he'll talk a little bit about the book specifically. And then as I say in a couple of weeks I will release the rest of the interview because he ended up it ended up being a really fun interview in that we ranged far and wide. has had a chance to hear it. We talked about politics and, you know, pop culture and fantasy and science fiction and superheroes and, uh, you know, all sorts of things, whether Barack Obama is a good thing or a bad thing for <laughs> left-wingers and right-wingers and, you know, talked about all that. So we'll have a chance to play that clip. He is a very interesting guy. Some of what he has to say is controversial. So I will warn you guys up front when you're listening to the interview that um, there will definitely be things that some of you disagree with, that many of you will disagree with perhaps, but he's extremely intelligent and the way in which he puts a lot of what he has to say is really interesting so I found Mm -hmm. myself agreeing with him at some points disagreeing at others but it was always some
2: people that hold their opinions so dear or I would say maybe make it too personal they have hard times listening to people that have viewpoints from the other side but I would think Mm -hmm. most of our listeners are so smart that they would be able to respect his intelligence even if he has a different opinion from them.
1: That's true. And if you're not one of those people, then clearly you've stumbled over into uh, the show thinking you're looking for Howard Stern. That's not here. But if we you... still
2: want you to stay.
1: Yes, but well, please stay anyway. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we, we haven't reviewed Howard Stern. No, we haven't. It's because he's not in the limelight anymore since he went onto that satellite radio thing.
1: It's also because as a family-friendly show, we would have it no would chance really of being able to review it. Yeah. The whole thing we would be like, here's a clips. clip from his show. He'd be like, hello, and then just one long beep, no, and then can't goodbye. just not do any clips, that's not. And all. that'd be it, Yeah, exactly.
2: I should mention too that I have allergies. Yes. And when I get really bad allergies, I get a really bad voice.
1: That, combined with our mobile setup, which we've spoken about previously on our last episode, means that the quality, at least on Clea's side, may not be as good as it would otherwise be. So you'll have to imagine the dulcet tones of her voice, as we usually understand. Right. So let's talk a little bit about this book. I think Uh, it's
2: fitting, because what's going on in the news right now around what our modern day heroes are, sports figures of A-Rod and 10 gold... He had 10 gold medals, right?
1: 10 gold medalists. I think so. Oh, Phelps, yeah.
2: Phelps being caught... And uh, we heard on the news when it first happened saying, tune in later and we'll discuss what you can tell your kids when their heroes fail. Ugh. And we just thought that was just so awful because, sort you know, that they would first be heroes and second of all that you would consider it a failure that he engaged in some kind of drug use. Exactly. But anyway. Our, our first um,
1: reaction, I think, would be uh, how about what to tell your kids is not to pay attention to athletes as your role models. But, well, uh, that, and, that
2: people have weaknesses and yep. it's what you do once you fall
1: it's how you respond to it's the how fall. you
2: you know pick yourself back up again
1: in fact it was a, a very famous person who said that it's uh, about how you pick yourself up not about how you fall that defines you and you know who said that Kevin Garnett, basketball player for the Celtics. But anyway, don't let my. Uh, uh,
2: okay. <laughs> not
1: that there's any uh, inconsistency. So
2: anyway, there. speaking
1: of heroes. Yes, so speaking of heroes, the review that we have for you this week is from the Notebooks of Dr. Brain. This is a book which was released in January of 2007 by Del Rey. And you can find it at, if you go to Amazon.com, I don't think I need to read this out for you, but it's notebooks-doctor-brain-minister-faust. <laughs> if you type in Notebooks of Dr. Brain in the search in Amazon, you'll find it. Yeah. That's probably the best. Best way to get it. And it's still ranked about 443,000 in books, which isn't bad for a book which came out you know, two years ago now. And this was pretty successful, and when you read the book, I think you can tell why. The book is basically two books in one. The inner book is a book called Unmasked, and basically the idea is it is a self-help book for superheroes. So it's written in kind of a self-help style. If you've ever read any of those books, you'll often find them to have uh, certain case studies or things like that in which the therapist or the doctor will talk about patients that he or she has treated before and they'll Periodically have these things through those
2: case studies. They demonstrate the theories the treatments the methods that they're suggesting that you use in order to make your life better
1: Right, and they'll give sort of periodic, you know Exercises and pep talks about how this you know applies to you and what you can do with the information you've learned and so forth And the twist here is that it's all for superheroes So this is the discussing this woman dr. Brain who's the um, psychotherapist And she's talking about this group of superheroes that she works with a group that has been sent there by their board of directors of a group called the Fuge, which is the major sort of superhero organization. And they've ordered this group F-O-O-J. of people to go to, uh, yeah, F-O-J, to go to Dr. Brain so that they can be treated because otherwise, you know, they're going to be basically be released out. and kicked out of the organization because yeah. they're so dysfunctional. And so it starts out as that. But what the book actually is, as you begin to read into it, is it's not just a self-help book. It's a satire. So on the one hand, it's satirizing sort of traditional superheroes. You will recognize in there superheroes Superman, You will recognize in there sort of a Batman yeah. equivalent. You will recognize superheroes that you'd be familiar with. But on a larger level, it's also satirizing a lot of other things. And this is, I think, where the book is interesting, especially because it's satirizing self-help it's satirizing superheroes, it's satirizing current psychotherapy, it's also satirizing and taking a very serious look through satire at politics and um, political conditions of the current day. And one of the interesting things you'll hear in the interview with Minister Faust is he'll talk about the fact that he wrote this specifically in response to the atrocities committed on 9-11 in September 11, 2001, and what he found to be the response by the corporate media, by the American government, by a lot of the people after that attack and what had sort of led up to that tack and then going forward. And so the book really, in a lot of ways, is very serious. And I think th- I read a couple of the reviews on Amazon, one of which says, I want my 1395 back. This book was supposed to be funny. It isn't. It's supposed to be a satire on today's world. It isn't. And the sort of negative reviews all sort of go along that line. Well, like,
2: I think I think with a lot of books that take this kind of risk, it's, it's a given that there'll be some people... That it goes completely over their head and i don't mean that condescendingly i mean simply they weren't looking at it through those eyes right. and so they mistake everything that he says and everything that he's doing so you know with all good satire if it's too close to home it can seem just that little bit off that makes you go well this isn't this is ridiculous this is stupid i can't believe that character's saying that that's racist or i can't believe the character's saying that that's ridiculously obvious when if you realize that you know it's, it's satire and he's making all of these different allusions, then it quickly turns from stupid to brilliant
1: Right. One of the things that's important about that then and one of the reasons that this is a good book I think for us to review is because it indicates one of the most important things I think we could try to, we would hope people would sort of strive for which is not to read on the assumptions you get from reading the back of the book, let's say. Not to read based purely upon what you think a book is going to be. Same thing for going to see a film or a TV show or anything that you're going to watch. Don't assume going in that you know exactly what it's about. Because I think that assumption will color very much what you understand from the book or the film or the TV show going forward. I mean in this case if you believe that this was a beach reading book, well, you know, you're going to be disappointed. It's not a beach reading book. And in fact, I think Clea is going to mention in a minute one of the things that she had more trouble with is that it's not particularly easy to follow. And there are a lot of times where the sort of multiplicity of voices and leaping from character to character and narrative position to narrative position, even though it's all being filtered through the narrative voice of Dr. Brain, all of these case studies from a bunch of superheroes are things that if you're not familiar with the superhero universe, if you're not up on some of these references and illusions, you're not going to get it. And, and
2: I, I also one to so. your your utilization of case study in this regard. It, it doesn't fit any of the case studies I've read. I, okay. I don't think that's what, there's another word for it that I can't recall right now, but it's a, um, you're reading the dialogue that happened within the group therapy sessions. Okay. It's not case studies. Case studies is, is a summary of a person's history and their conditions and their diagnoses but yes i mean there there's lots of opportunities to misinterpret i think in this book and that's what makes it so risky and yeah there were definitely times where i was extremely frustrated with the dialogue Mm -hmm. and keeping track of things Mm -hmm. But then I turn the page and there would be some phrase or some paragraph or some illusion that I would find. You just you, just, you stop again and think, okay, this guy's really brilliant. But yeah. then, you know, I mean, so it is tough. And, and I, I can understand if people got this thinking, oh, it's just a great comic book. And then.
1: <laughs> it wasn't
2: at all what they wanted. <laughs> no,
1: and, and even if you follow it um, directly in terms of tone, I think the book takes a pretty serious shift downwards. I mean, the the, the book is kind of a grim book in a lot of ways, and, I, you know, minister oh, yeah. even agrees no, with that. You know, it's it's a pretty chilling indictment, in a way, of a lot of modern society. And it may be an indictment which you don't agree with. You know, say you even get through all the illusions and you kind of, you know, peel away all those layers. When oh, you yeah. get to the bottom, you might, you might not agree with his central message. So right. there is that to be said, too. But see, I think... A book that challenges you is a book which is worthwhile even if it's a book that you ultimately disagree with if the book was sort of a kind of a vitriolic explication of what's wrong with the world you know I don't know that the book would work as well but I think it works well in part because it doesn't shy away from subtlety and by the way that's the other thing I mean he says in this interview as you'll hear that he was worried that some people wouldn't get it and he even has one of his characters accuse Dr. Brain of being the ultimate unreliable narrator I would hope you would get that anyway but I mean if you don't get it he sort of wanted to make sure that everyone understood that at least that's a possibility mm-hmm. and I think One of the things that he does that is, again, risky, I like your term, is that he doesn't make even the characters that he dislikes. Because Dr. Brain, as you'll see as you read the book a lot of issues with Dr. Brain. But even Dr. Brain is not always wrong. And characters, and I won't say who, within this book that you would think would be always right are not always right either. And that's the mark of a good author is someone who, even though it would serve the clarity of his purpose theoretically, you know, to produce characters that are very much one way or the other, he avoids those binaries. And the best satire actually does that. And this is very much in the tradition of satirists like Ishmael Reed or uh, Jonathan Swift with Gulliver's Travels or Voltaire with Candide. is very much in that line where there are some things we you go, okay, I see where this is getting at. And there are other things that are more subtle, but it's always sort of turning the unflinching light of truth, so to speak, mm-hmm. on the sort of hidden places of our society. Right. And so, I mean, I guess I would ask you, Clea, then before we give the number review, I mean, did the difficulty in following it and sort of the leaping around, is that something which detracts from the book for you? Is that, you know, well, what for a general audience who's coming in, a well-read but not an audience that knows comic books per se? What would you say I, about I that?
2: I say I think it, it it pays to know what you're getting into with this book. Okay. And I, too, didn't know what I was getting into. Okay. And uh, so I got a little hiccuped in the beginning as well. But since we had agreed to read this book and review this book, I pushed through. hmm Got got over that, but but yes, I, I can see the initial frustration of that, and it and sounds like he was aware of it, aware of that risk. Yeah. It doesn't make it any less worthwhile. I mean, there's plenty of great literature that can be a little bit tough sloshing at times. So no, I, I don't think it ruins it. I think there's enough gems in there that it makes it worthwhile. But they were definitely frustrating moments.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, even the uh, one of the sort of characteristics of the book is that Dr. Brain uses these absolutely horrendous analogies. Um, and that's very much in the line of sort of a lot of the self-help books, because as Minister points out, self-help books are not well known for their prosaic style. Okay. The prose is pretty terrible in most of these books. And so he they does want to make things,
2: it simplistic and straightforward.
1: Yeah. So he talks about these analogies like uh, this was a. Um, uh, you know a, a popped pimple on the face of our grief or something like that I mean just terrible analogies and he said one of his worries was when he was writing them that people would think that he was You know that that was his idea. You know the author was like <laughs> oh, these are great analogies And as he said, it's not easy to write garbage analogies. You yeah. know, it's it's really not easy um,
2: It's tough to when you want to portray a character But you don't want people to think that you're that character
1: right exactly and that you know One of the things I do as a professor is try to clear up confusion between the author right. and the narrative voice and yeah. how those are often not the same Right. um and that's that's a very critical thing to remember and it's yes. be something you'd be well considered to keep in mind so I really like this book. I really admire it. I think that there's a lot of good that's going on in in it. I'm not sure, given my sort of penchant usually to, I wouldn't say to avoid grim books, but you know, I wouldn't go out and go, ah, this is this is a real it's picture. Up. Up. You know, I would I would be aware going in that there is this is a unflinching look at reality, and so there's a lot of stuff in here which is sort of a downer, I guess I would say. But having said that, it's a downer which is speaking based upon the truth of society as Minister Faust understands it. Mm-hmm. And while I don't always agree with him. I think that there's a lot of truth, a lot of things that he says that are accurate and that we would do well, I think, to take more note of than usually is the case. And so for that reason, I think it's very, very well done. So I would rate this between an eight or a nine, but I'm willing to go either way based upon if you want to go down to an eight CLIA because of the, that's fine with me yes yeah, yeah okay so let's say an eight out of ten um i highly recommend it if you have even the vaguest interest in comic book superheroes or if you have the vaguest interest in current politics and good well, yeah, satire I mean, of current you're politics. you're gonna hear in
2: the interview i think even if from the interview you'll want to go beyond the book and listen to read his blog doesn't he have a blog that's correct yeah oh, i'm fact, sorry
1: bro log yes his blog is actually minister faust m-i-n-i-s-t-e-r-f-a-u-s-t dot blogspot b-l-o-g-s-p-o-t dot com he does a show on Edmonton Public Radio he's been a teacher he's an activist so I mean this is a very interesting guy. He's, and I he's think one
2: of those guys you might want to follow.
1: Right. He's yeah, one of those guys that you'll be interested to, to listen to. Things. He's even stood for office in Canada, actually. So he's been politically active in that way. Mm-hmm. So this is the kind of guy who's extremely intelligent and worth listening to. And he is a gifted author. And he has other books coming out um, in the next, you know, several years, I think. So he'll be worth following. And I think this would be a good place to start. He also wrote another book, yeah. which is Coyote Kings of the Space Age Bachelor Pad, which is about <laughs> kind of, um, it, it's about gangs in Edmonton. I shouldn't say that. It's about kids growing up in Edmonton with magic powers. So there's some kind of super hero space you know science fiction stuff going on there as well i have not yet read that book i'm interested in doing so that came out in 2004 Hmm. but both of those books i think are going to be worthwhile i'm looking forward to reading that one but i can definitely recommend notebooks of dr brain so we will give it an eight out of ten and we hope you enjoy the interview which is to follow and we will be back at you ourselves in a couple of weeks with the next part of the show and then of course with our normal show to follow soon thereafter until then thanks for staying with us and uh, we will talk to you guys soon upon further review i'm greg i'm clea See you soon. Okay. Upon further review, my name is
0: Greg, and it is my pleasure to have someone on the show today who I've been hoping to get on for a few months. We actually met for the first time at a convention we were both at, the World Fantasy Convention, which was last year. I can't believe how fast these things go. And I am happy to have on the show today a minister Faust, who is an author, he is a political activist, he is a teacher, he is a variety of things. It's one of the reasons I brought him on the show because, as everyone out there knows, we are also a variety of things. We review a variety of things in this show. And and he writes specifically satire and science fiction, but a lot of what he talks about sort of ranges across a number of different fields and genres, and so I wanted to bring him in today. And Minister, welcome to the program.
3: Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, Greg.
0: So I guess I wanted to start by just very quickly asking about the pen name. Minister Faust is a, is a writer's name specifically, and without you don't have to give me the details of how you came up with it, but why the name? Why the pen name?
3: Well, I, I, I think that having a a pen name adds to Mystique. Uh, some people react very negatively online. Really? They, you know, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's rare, right? But look at the occasional, like, who does what, how preposterous and pretentious and blah, blah. But <laughs> for the most part, I get the opposite. It's like, wow, that's a crazy name. I love that. What the hell? And it's opened doors for interviews. Uh, I'm uh, working on a book on HBO's The Wire, and I um, relayed through somebody else a request to David Simon, who created the series, uh-huh. that I wanted an interview. And the message that I got back was from Simon speaking to this other person who said, I will... Uh, I will speak with anyone named Faust. <laughs> so I, I appreciated that. And, and so it's, uh, it's, you know, it's uh, the, the cost-benefit analysis uh, makes it a, a plus.
0: Ah, excellent, excellent. Well, I, yeah, anything that, uh, anything that adds to the mystique, I think is, is probably a good thing. One of the things that you brought up about The Wire is something that I'm going to want to talk about here, which is I want to talk a little bit about the genesis of both your books, but I want to focus on the one that we're reviewing on our show, which is from The Notebooks of Dr. Brain. And I want to ask about the genesis of that book, because obviously there's a lot going on in this book which deals with contemporary issues, contemporary political concerns, you know, sort of modern pop culture, perhaps more modern American culture than Canadian, although I guess you could tell me more about whether Canada is falling into the same trap that America seems to be in these days. <laughs> yeah. um, but I wanted to ask a little bit about the genesis for the book from The Notebooks of Dr. Brain, and maybe if you could just briefly explain in your words what the book is, and then we can sure. talk a little bit about that.
3: From the Notebooks of Dr. Brain is a, uh, it is a book within a book. The interior book is called Unmasked, When Being a Superhero Can't Save You from Yourself by Dr. Brain. And it exists in a Marvel-slash-DC-style superhero world in the year 1995 um, in which six of the most powerful heroes from the food, the, the world's most powerful supergroup, have been ordered by their board of directors to seek group therapy and individual counseling, or they'll be fired and lose their benefits and be publicly disgraced because their behavior inside of the group is so so contentious and fractious that it's it's causing the organization to uh, to break apart. So it's um you know it's a self help book for superheroes, uh, and like uh, you know many self help books, it uses the um, you know the, the the arc is the experience of patients beginning therapy and and going through it and making self-discoveries. And so a lot of people like to uh, condemn self-help books as a genre, which is intellectually dishonest. You you can no more condemn self-help books as a genre than science fiction as a genre. Um, they're either well-written or they're not period
0: it's a little Um, easier though isn't it (laughs) to get done the self-help
3: books (laughs) it's easy to it's very easy to take shots of them but of course those of us who love science fiction and fantasy know just how easy it is for others to take shots at us for loving those genres and so um, some are well-written some are are highly insightful Um, plenty of people I know have read them and I've read many Um, and and uh, what tends to be the case is that the prose is very weak. I mean, that, that, that's a fact. And, and and something that I really had a great deal of fun uh, lampooning was the fact that, especially the metaphors <laughs> and are, are just uniquely atrocious in in that genre. You
0: said before in, in previous interviews that you were actually worried, right, that in, when you were constructing these metaphors that people would think it was you as, as the <laughs> exactly. author coming up with them, right? Let, let me just that's read right. one very quickly of those metaphors uh, from the book. The uh, pustulant eruption of grief from Tempest and Pyromany at the laying to rest of Lady Liberty was a popped pimple on the face of the 1945 funeral scene. That's one of my personal favorite metaphors in this book. So. <laughs>
3: Yes, and you know, I'll tell you, it's it's it is it's not easy to write that way. You know, you really when you if you go through an English degree or you know you devote your life to to writing, you're always trying to come up with the best possible uh, metaphor, for instance, a turn of phrase. And so you have to unplug yourself from that and and consciously go after something that's atrocious. And uh, right. it takes a lot more work than you'd think.
0: <laughs> not for these people who aren't aware that they're doing it, probably, which is the majority no. of self help people.
3: No. For the people who, who are poorly trained or the people who write, let's say, Hallmark cards, that comes very easily. Right, that, that's right. Because they, they haven't had that stuff beaten out of them by uh, by angry uh, English professors.
0: That's right. That's right. So once you had managed to dumb yourself down, let's say, uh, to be able to, <laughs> yeah. produce, to produce those things, um, yeah. then in the process of writing it, you were writing this sort of nested book within a book. But one of the things you were mentioning as you were talking about that just now is this idea that there are a lot of levels to the book and people react to it on different levels. And so I wonder if you could talk about that because, the as you say, it's a self-help book which has, at the beginning, this very different kind of tone. If you're used to yeah. superheroes and comics and things like that, you'll be used to the tone and you'll understand the sort of self-help point. But the book sort of changes tone, and there's a lot, as is the case with all great satire, there's a lot of really serious work going on below. And I wonder what the process was for you of coming up with that sort of dual idea in your mind of creating something that really had a serious purpose and has a almost a grim tone, I'd say, by the time you get to the yeah. book.
3: Well, I appreciate you mentioning all those levels and understanding the grimness because occasionally, you know, some people approach it and they think that it's supposed to be light or beach reading or something like that. And, right. I mean, it's, it's a deadly serious book in which I was talking about what I was, as far as I was concerned, some of the most serious issues of our time. I mean, it started off um, just with the kind of the, the, as many books do, you know, you have a, a neat hook, you know, which is, you know, superheroes in, in therapy. And, and I thought, oh, that'll be that'll be fun, you know, and I'll get to, to have, I like superheroes and that'll be nice. But, um, as always happens when I come up with a novel manuscript, I'm thinking, "Well, what are all the things that matter to me right now? What's what's really on my mind constantly?" And um, certainly, um, one of the most significant ones was the um, the the uh, atrocities committed on September 11th in, in 2001 inside of the United States. Right, and. Information came out, you know, almost immediately after. And it's interesting when you go back and you look at what was coming up at that time, as opposed to years later and loose change and that kind of thing. Um, I remember receiving a um, an excerpt of uh, Jane's Defense Weekly, which is, you know, in the English-speaking world, I think one of the most esteemed military intelligence analysis magazines. And it you know it, it carried like this is like within 10 days or something after September 11th, carried um, headlines uh, to the effect of why did the United States ignore warnings from Russia and Israel about, I think it was specifically Russian intelligence, about the impending attack. Uh-huh. So, you know, that, was, that kind of stuff was known immediately. Right. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, that of course, it begs the question, as many people did, and many fine authors wrote, and I, I, uh, I credited one at the back of the book, uh, Nafiz Mossadegh Ahmed No. He, Nafiz Ahmed Mossadegh, who wrote the book The War on Freedom, um, you know, all of the many uh, indicators that the United States had advanced warning. Now, that leads to different questions such as did they dismiss these warnings or did they knowingly choose not to act on those warnings to prevent the attack? Uh, I'm not going to claim perfect knowledge of any of these things, but what I will say is that it's outrageous that the preponderance of evidence that shows foreknowledge and a history of U.S. government dirty dealings and spooky deals uh, is simply dismissed outright by corporate reporters. It's simply not possible to analyze these extremely logical questions about where the evidence leads us. Right, they're dismissed as
0: so much conspiracy theory.
3: Yes, exactly. And, you know, I think one of the great uh, shames of our intellectual culture is the way that the word conspiracy has been turned into an uh, essentially, a dismissive. Now, right. It's it's also hi- hypocritical because for the for the people who say there's no such thing as conspiracies, which is just a, a silly statement on the face of it, they're left then saying that evidently the 1970 hijackers never met each other before, bumped into each other that day. They just coincidentally all had the same plan. Right. Because. Obviously, they were conspirators. Right. The people who say there's no such thing as conspiracies evidently never heard of the Iran-Contra affair or Watergate. Right. Uh, you know, and on and on. And so, how is it possible that people can ignore? And you know, these are just small cases. I mean, we could talk about all of the stuff that's laid out in John Stockwell's book about uh, you know, the secret wars perpetrated by the CIA. So all of this is, by definition, criminal conspiracies, and that's why police in the United States can charge people with criminal conspiracy. It's a, it's a simple, straightforward understanding that when people secretly plan to break the law together, that's a conspiracy. Yep. Unfortunately, you know, we have a corporate media cli- uh, climate that says, you know, no, the United States government would never do anything illegal. And you think, well, how, <laughs> how, can, how can anybody be that willfully stupid? Right. And ignoring of history. So I want I wanted to address that. And, you know, along the way uh, with that as the the most one of the most important goals of the book, um, I wanted to touch on, you know, the grotesquely misleading nature of corporate journalism. I wanted to touch on the ways that psychology and psychiatry and the self-help book um, movement focuses people on individual failings. Uh, which which I think serves a political purpose, which is to get us to ignore the structural reasons for injustice in our world.
0: Which means, then, that your sympathies are much more one of the characters in the book for people who have not read it yet, although I hope our audience will go run out and buy this book after the interview. But one of the characters uh, is the X-Man, or Kareem, who... Mm -hmm. partly because this book is told in large part from the perspective it's you know from Dr. Brain's notebooks and Dr. Brain is the ultimate in unreliable narrators I think Mm -hmm. and you know she more or less paints him as this delusional you know as you just say dismissively calling him a conspiracy theorist more or less Um, even though he's turns out to be I won't spoil I won't spoil it but I mean he's a lot (laughs) more right than at least is sort of indicated at first so your sympathies are more with him then as it turns out even though he's presented for much of the book by her as this you know absurd absurdly out there kind of you know theory yeah guy.
3: and 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 in particular you know uh a uh he can be dismissed as the conspiracy theorist or as the angry black man or you know uh, or the uh, he's painted as a homophobe and a sexist and there's all kinds of ways in which the narrator's um ideology blinds her to what's right in front of her eyes right and uh you know, and I think that that speaks to our um, you know from everything from from daytime talk shows to nighttime news magazines, our local papers uh, it's uh, Noam Chomsky's pointed out many times that in freer societies relatively free and by free I mean you know with great legal freedom and constitutional freedom um, that uh, naked force is rarely going to be used by the state to suppress. Uh, dissidents. I mean, it will, and the more, you know, the more colored you are, the more likely it is to be used, although many white unionists certainly found that out in the 1930s, yep. and at various times in Canadian and American history, that the state would unleash brutality against them. And, you know, there there are other occasions as well. But for the most part, most middle class, and in, in particular, white middle class people are going to be safe from police batons or, or you know, assassins' bullets. But as Chomsky points out, it's precisely because of that freedom that such governments need to use more uh, social mental control, not by implanting devices inside of people's skulls, but rather by using an elaborate system of propaganda uh, called advertising media. Um, a media system does, it doesn't require that there be people sitting around a smoky room in the light of Venetian blinds um, <laughs> saying, you know, this is what you're going to do, Mr. Newspaper Editor." Uh, Sometimes it's simply a matter of the White House press spokesman in the most in the most uh, egregious of circumstances, simply saying, you know, as uh, after 2001, you know, reporters and media have to be careful, which is, you know, a a threat. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Uh, um, But most of the time, these people come from the same classes, the same class interests. They share the same worldview. They don't need to be ordered by somebody. They already have bought in. Right. They already believe those things. So, and, and, and when things clash with their, with their worldview, the evidence is right in front of them, they simply can't process it. It's psychological dissonance. So they, they simply stick with the script that they have been trained to believe is true. So, and that system is what, is what Chomsky calls totalitarianism, yeah. a system that's not just ruled by naked force, but ruled by um, socializing people within a very narrow range of potential beliefs.
0: And because it's partially created as as kind of this, um, I don't know, it comes about because everyone has bought into the view without necessarily receiving marching orders, you know, secret mm-hmm. letters that, you know, dis- there are tapes that destroy themselves, a la Mission Impossible. That makes it even the more difficult, because then you'll see occasionally this sort of weak attempt at investigative journalism where someone will look mm-hmm. into it for about five seconds. And because there's yeah. no direct paper trail where, you know, George Bush ordered, you know, uh, Lou Dobbs to be uh, anti immigrant and racist on CNN, you know, they, then right. they say, well, there's obviously no conspiracy without looking at much That's more. Right. Part of, and I, actually that leads me to another question I want to ask about this then, which is part of the thing that both uh, Clea uh, and I have talked about on this show before is sort of our annoyance at this lack of complexity. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm an author and a professor and, uh, and a teacher and you are as well, and I think you may have run into this, I've certainly run into before, this sense that I'm always trying to teach to complexity to sort of talk about the nuances, the shades of gray and so forth. That's kind of what you do in teaching is sort of break down obvious black-white stereotypes and sort of create a a more... I don't know. More of a gray area. Create environments where you're talking more about the nuances. Um, and most of popular culture, I think, at least in America, I don't know whether it's as true in Canada, tends to work the opposite direction. It tends to reduce nuance as much as possible. It tends to, you know, divide into very clearly definable groups. Even though a lot of people in America are, you know, are much smarter than this. Frankly, I mean, the, you mm-hmm. know, the, yeah. they, they don't need to be patronized in this way. But the sense is, right. if you do that, it's then easier to, you know, control them and, and direct things. So I, I guess my question then is this book that you wrote is itself as a satire by definition somewhat complex and then you obviously have to add in even more layers of complexity and I wondered if as you were writing it there was a temptation on your part to think but what if people don't get it I mean you know what if people what if people read it and they think ah it's a pleasant superhero story I mean that would have to be infuriating I would think and I'm wondering if that worried you
3: well, it did worry me tremendously. In fact, I was so worried about it that I actually had uh, the x men three times accuse the um, the narrator, Dr. Brain, of being an unreliable narrator.
0: Right, just in case. So,
3: you know, just in case. And I thought, well, you know, this is my only shot because I don't want to be – I don't want to hit people over the head. And yet there were still people who – I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, sci uh, Com reviewed the book, and you know, it was generally a pretty positive review, but the um, – the end of the review made a remark to the effect that you know, sure it's funny, but so's Mad Magazine. <laughs> and I thought, like, well, if you think that this is operating on the level of now, I mean, I'm told that Mad had various times was more political than it yes, is. Yes, that's true. Or was when I was growing up. But that being said, I mean, this isn't just a it's not just a, a goof, you know, you don't just read this book, uh, you shouldn't at any rate, and just think like, ha ha, that's Superman. That's, that's yeah. not the point, you know. If one is missing in this book, uh, Rupert Murdoch and Canadian, ex-Canadian media baron Conrad Black, mm-hmm. if one's missing George Bush and Dick Cheney and Condoleezza Rice, um, I'd say that one is not reading very carefully, but right. you know, um, people watched Starship Troopers and thought it was a meathead movie. Time Mag- I think it was Time Magazine thought Starship Troopers was a fascist film, as opposed to the obviously anti-fascist film that it is. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, wh- what can you do? And the thing is, it's easy to just say, well, that's the educational system for you. But being a teacher, I can say that, you know, you can teach stuff. Absolutely. And you, can, you do your best. <laughs> it doesn't mean it's going to stick, you know, and, or it might stick for 10 minutes. But once people leave your classroom, they're back in the same environment that is largely about, I'm sure a lot of your audience has seen um, John Carpenter's They Live. Mm-hmm. So you know you're right back in the in out in the uh, the supposed sunlight without sunglasses and you can't see through the the, the, the mirage that's 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 unfortunately used to, to blind us.
0: I like that and and I think I think you're right about that. Although I will say um, I tend to be a little optimistic by nature, I suppose. And I have found that my students over the years have gotten more savvy to this. I mean, it could be mm-hmm. that they're just they're just fooling me, but I think they are they are much less likely to be fooled the same way in the future. The danger of that is that it can possibly create a sort of cynicism, which isn't very positive either, you know, where you're yeah. you're creating a, a group that just sort of says, well, the hell with all of it. Um, yeah. But I don't think anymore that a lot of my students are missing the sort of obvious signs of what's going on out there, I think. I don't know if you've noticed that, but I think my students have gotten more savvy over the years anyway.
3: Well, you know, I I, I think that's a very positive take and I think you're probably right that a lot of people are Um, I I would absolutely say that you know in in the 12 12 years that I was a a high school, junior high and high school English teacher that I saw a lot more in the way of concern by young people with social justice issues, the environment and more than I saw in my peers I mean when I was 16, 17 um, and starting to get involved with anti-apartheid work I mean I couldn't get a single one of my high school peers to come to a demonstration. And uh, now lots of kids, you know, and I mean, I um, and they range in their backgrounds. I mean, for instance, um, I'll throw this out because it puts me in an unflattering light, um, <laughs> uh, but, but that's important because, you know, it's important for us to show that we don't know everything. Um, I had the impression from, I guess, stereotyping that um, Mormons as a group were all politically reactionary and uh, I taught at a school that was that had many many mormon students, and they were among the most politically progressive uh social justice minded kids and artistic kids that i ever that i ever taught you know yeah. Um uh, you know they were in you know rock and punk bands and they were in drama and they cared about social issues and read science fiction and you know it was really fascinating and and so it it showed that kids of diverse backgrounds um had uh had learned a lot of really valuable lessons, uh, many of them on their own, many through their communities and faith communities and, and otherwise. So, yeah, there are a lot, a lot of people who are awake, and it's, and it's you know, who, who took the uh, red pill and chose, you know, not to, to, uh, to sell out for that piece of steak um, in uh, the first Matrix film, which incidentally, just, just because it's fun to point out, uh, uh, the character Cypher, who's the, the Judas in that film, is actually named Reagan, if you uh, go back and the film of the agent I had forgotten
0: that. That's funny. Yeah. Would that they had stopped at the first film and not decided to Hollywood it up in the last
3: two.
0: (laughs) Um, That's just my own Um, personal I agree
3: with you 100% on that one.
0: So let me ask then, uh, one quick follow-up on that, and then I want to sort of move to talking about the relationship between science fiction and politics. But I want to quickly ask, though, about that question. Given the circumstances of, you know, you wanted to make sure that uh, the unreliable narrator was questioned and so forth, one of the things that you do, though, as good writers should, is that I I assume you would say that Dr. Brain is not always wrong, nor is exactly. Kareem always right, yeah. and I assume that That's makes right. it a little more difficult also. Is that is that fair to say?
3: Yeah. I'm really glad that you said that because... Um uh, to me, it's just not fair if one character is always right and another character is always wrong. Um, that, that's not what life is like. And I think one of the most important uh, purposes of fiction, it kind of alludes to what I was just saying about my those wonderful Mormon students that I had, which is that we need to learn to move past our own preconceptions of people and see them as they actually are. Yeah. And, um uh, Doctor Brain is is um, is right about something. Sometimes she's right without even realizing that she's how <laughs> <out Yeah. laughs> the way in which she's right, you know. And uh, yeah, Kareem. I mean, Kareem being an investigator, um, he he's moving from best theory that he's got at the time to the next one, to the you know theory one point one and one point two and so forth. So he's wrong for for you know in his. Perspective of what happened to—I mean—the—the—the—the the, 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 the story is a one level A murder mystery, and he's—he's he's wrong for most of his investigation. But I mean, I assume lots of police are too. Um, right. But you know, uh, but he's also, as he comes to realize, there were times that—I mean, this doesn't give away too much. I think there were times he should have stood up for people, and he didn't, in particular, in, in, in the context of, of of homophobia, where he should have—he should have. Um, Challenge the people who are being homophobic, and while and while he himself isn't, um, he's he's cowardly for not having done something about it. And that's right. it's not enough for us to say, oh, I don't, you know, I don't personally dislike Muslims, Jews, gay people, Catholics, atheists, whatever. Um, if we're seeing them be abused and we don't say anything, then we're passive collaborators.
0: They came for the Jews, and I said nothing. And the, yeah, I mean exactly. that 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 famous uh, that famous peroration on that subject. Yeah, yeah. and exactly. even members of his own community actually reject Kareem, not necessarily for the homosexuality angle, but how he has excluded a lot of them, um, yeah. and and so he has trouble sort of garnering support among his own group in some cases. Whatever that group happens to be at the time.
3: Well, that's right. And, you know, I've known, um, you know, in my own political experiences uh, as a Kenyan Canadian, I've I've worked with various groups across Canada, and I met I met people who were, you know, um, in the African-Canadian community, some who were progressive, some who were, uh, would be, I guess, typically seen as conservatives, uh, cultural nationalists, black nationalists, and others. And, you know, what I found was, and I, I think this is also true in many uh, segments of the white left, that you find people who are so angry about injustice that they stop, first of all, they're total bummers. <laughs> just to put it, you know, <laughs> they're no fun, really. Uh, <laughs> No, you know, and they are no fun, and that is a great commercial for anti-politics, you know, like, why would anybody want to join the movement if you're going to be surrounded by people who are constantly making you feel lousy? Right. And yeah, a lot of them also, um, they were so embittered by the injustice that they saw, and often, you know, had turned to politics because of having encountered personal alienation and, and misery and so forth, and, or saw the humiliation of their parents, or their communities, and so forth, that... Um, They were just—they were—they were were the kind of people who, when they felt you were on their side, they were these rich, fast friends and invited you in and and, and cared about you and opened their hearts. And then the second you said something that disagreed with them, boom—you were out. You—that was it. You—you might as well have been, you know, uh, convicted of counter-revolutionary crimes. Right. So, I think yeah, it's—it is important to, especially through fiction, to help people see these ways in which we need to, um, you know, uh, review our own behavior. Um, if we're trying to improve society, realize that, um, it's not a one comes first, the other comes second. I don't, I don't buy into that formula that, you know, you have to change yourself before you can change. the world. I think that these things are, uh, all of them are ongoing processes that need to be engaged in simultaneously.
0: The proceeding was a presentation of upon further review, Hosted at www.furtherreview.net. As usual, all rights are reserved. If you liked what you heard, please vote for us at podcastalley.com, vitalpodcast.com, and add us to your list of favorites at podcastpickle.com. You can leave us a comment at www.furtherreview.net, drop us a line at at furtherreview.net, or give us a phone call or send a fax to 206-339-UFR1. That's 206 206- 3398371 And lastly, don't be afraid to express your opinions. We know you have them. Let them out. Feel the power. Or you could just blindly accept whatever we tell you is fact. That'll work.